Section 19 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. Section 19. Chapter 6. The Organization of the Church by C. H. Turner. Part 3. But because presbyters might preach in the bishop's church, where he could note and correct at once any defects in their teaching, it does not necessarily follow that they might preach in the parish churches, and there does not seem to be any clear indication in the fourth and fifth centuries that they did in fact do so. For Rome, indeed, this is hardly surprising. We have seen how jealously parochial independence was there limited, and even at the bishop's mass, if we may believe the historian Sozomen, there were no sermons either by priest or bishop. In fact, St. Leo's sermons, he became pope just about the time that Sozomen published his church history, are the first of which we hear after Justin's time in Rome. But in Gaul too, and as late as the beginning of the 6th century, only the city priests, the priests, that is, who served in the bishop's church, had the right to preach. The second canon of the Second Council of Aisson in 529 extends the right, apparently, for the first time, to country parishes. Placunt ut non solum in civitatibus, sed etiam im omnibus, parochis verbum faciendi, deremus presbyteris potestatum. If the priest is at any time unable to preach through illness, the deacon is to read to the people homilies of the Holy Fathers. It is perhaps surprising at first sight to find that in the 4th and 5th centuries presbyters are establishing a new independence in face of the bishop, rather than bishops exerting a new and stricter authority over presbyters. The conclusion has been reached by direct evidence, but it is also the conclusion clearly indicated by the analogy of the whole upward movement which we have seen at work in respect both to the minor orders and to the deaconate. But if this movement exerted so powerful an influence on the one hand, upon minor orders and deaconate, and on the other hand upon the priesthood, we could not expect that bishops should be exempted from it. How and where it led in their case, it will be part of our business in the second half of this chapter to trace. It was outside their own borders that the bishops of the great churches were tempted to look for a wider field of activity and a more commanding position. From the very first, the bishop of each community had represented in it its relation to other Christian communities, had been, so to say, its minister for foreign affairs. The visions of Hermas were to be communicated to the cities outside by Clement, for that function belongs to him. The Kinogar Epitetropti. The complex developments of this function from the second century to the fifth must now engage our attention. B. So far, we have been dealing only with the internal development of the individual Christian community, but there is an external as well as an internal development to trace. The separate communities were always in intimate touch with one another, and the common feeling of the mass of them formed an authority which, from the beginning, the law of Christian brotherhood made supreme. If one member suffer, all the members suffer. We have no such custom neither the churches of God. 
The principles are laid down in our earliest Christian documents, and the organization of the Catholic Church was an attempt to work them out in practice. No doubt the result only imperfectly embodied the idea, and in the process of translation into concrete form, the means came sometimes to appear of more value than the end. The history of the second century shows how naturally the formal process of federation grew out of what was at first the spontaneous response to the calls of membership of the great society, the natural effort to express the reality of Christian union and fellowship. The Roman community, under the leadership of St. Clement, writes a letter of expostulation when the traditions of stability and order are threatened by the dissensions between the Corinthian community and its presbyters. St. Ignatius addresses separate epistles to the churches of several cities in Asia Minor, on or near his road to Rome, exhorting them to hold fast to the traditional teaching and worldwide organization of the Christian society. The Church of Smyrna announces to the Church of Philomelium the martyrdom of its bishop Polycarp. The churches of Lyons and of Vienna sent to their brethren in Asia and Phrygia an account of the great persecution of 177, and the confessors from the same cities intervene with Pope Eleutherus in favor of sympathetic treatment of the Montanist movement. Correspondence was reinforced by personal intercourse. Polycarp journeyed to Rome to discuss the Easter difficulty with Pope Anacletus. Hegesippus, Melito, and Orbicius traveled widely among different churches. Clement of Alexandria had sat at the feet of half a dozen teachers. Never was the impulse to unity, the desire to test the doctrine of one church or of one teacher by its agreement with the doctrine of the rest, stronger than in the days when formal methods of arriving at the general sense of the scattered communities had not as yet been hammered out. The Christian statement of the age of the councils were only attempting to provide a more scientific means of attaining an end which was vividly before the minds of their predecessors in the sub-apostolic generations. The crucial step in the direction of organized action was taken when the bishops of neighboring communities began to meet together for mutual counsel. Such sonosoi, or concilia, were no doubt in the first instance called for specific purposes and at irregular times. Tertullian alludes to decisions of church councils unfavorable to the canonicity of the shepherd of Hermas, and makes special mention on another occasion of councils in Greece. Illus certus in locus concilia ex universis ecclesis, perque et eltiora quea quian communa tractantor, et ipsa representatio totius nominis Christiani magna veneratione celebrator. The earliest notice of separate councils held simultaneously to discuss a pressing problem of the day is also the earliest indication of the sort of area from which any one of such councils would naturally be drawn. For when, about 196, tension became acute in regard to the attitude of the bishop of proconsular Asia, who refused to come into line with the pastoral observances of other churches, councils were held as we learn from Eusebius, of the bishops in Palestine and in Pontus and in Gaul and in Oshorni. 
During the course of the 3rd century, these local or provincial councils became more and more regular and essential feature of church life and government, but there was as yet very little that was stereotyped about the system. It was Cyprian, beyond all others, who succeeded, during his brief ten years of episcopate, 248 to 258, in forging a very practical weapon for the needs of the time out of the consular movement, and of Cyprian's councils. Some represented, proconsular, Africa alone, some Africa and Numidia, some Africa, Numidia, and Mauritania combined. The meetings were more or less annual, but the extent of the area from which the bishops were summoned depended apparently upon the gravity of the business to be dealt with. Again, if the civil province was in ordinary cases the natural model to follow, there was no necessary dependence upon its boundary lines. But these were artificial or arbitrary. For reasons of state, the senatorial province of proconsular Africa and the imperial province of Numidia were so arranged that the more civilized districts and the seaboard belonged to the one, the more backward interior to the other. But the Numidia of ecclesiastical organization was the ethnic Numidia, the country of the Numidians, not the Numidia of political geography. Perhaps it was just for this reason, because ethnic and ecclesiastical Numidia was shared between two civil provinces, that in assemblies of the Numidian bishops, the president was not, as elsewhere, the bishop of the capital or metropolis of the province, but the bishop, senior by consecration. Not the least important result of the new direction given by Constantine to the relations of church and state was the authorization and encouragement of episcopal assemblies on a larger scale than had in earlier days been possible. Where difficulties, disciplinary or doctrinal, proved beyond the power of local effort to resolve, councils were planned of a more than provincial type. The Council of Arles in 314 was a general council, Concilium Plenarium, of the Western Church, summoned by Constantine as Lord of the Western Empire to terminate the quarrel in Africa between the partisans of Sicilian and the partisans of Donatus. Judgment went in favor of Sicilian, whose party, because they alone now remained in communion with the churches outside Africa, were henceforward the Catholics, while the others became a sect known after the name of their leader as the Donatists. The dispute between Alexander and Arius at Alexandria was in its beginning as purely local as that between Sicilian and Donatus, but the issue soon came to involve the comparison of the fundamental theologies of the two great rival schools of Alexandria and Antioch. From a council such as Arles, it was but a step to the conception of a general council of the whole church, where bishops from all over the world, should meet for comparison of the forms which the Christian tradition had taken in their respective communities, for open ventilation of points of controversy, and for the removal of misunderstanding by personal intercourse. Constantine, now master of an undivided empire, organized the first ecumenical council at Nicaea in 325. The great experiment was not an immediate success. The Nicene Council rather opened than closed the history of Arianism on the larger stage, 
and it was not till after the lapse of half a century that wisdom was seen to be justified of its works. Though very keenness of the struggle made the long-delayed and hardly won triumph more complete in the end. No council ever fastened its hold on Christian imagination in quite the same way as the Council of Nicaea. Not that there was ever any quarrel between the supporters and the opponents of the Homo Uwusian as to the rightness of the procedure, which had been called into being. The weapons with which the council and the creed were fought were rival councils and rival creeds. The verdict of the court was to be set aside by renewed trials and multiple appeals, in the hope of modifying somehow the original judgment. Of all these supplementary councils, none was strictly general, though on three occasions, at Sardica and Philippopolis in 343, at Ariminum and Seleucia in 359, at Aquileia and Constantinople in 381, councils representing separately the Greek and the Latin episcopate were held more or less at the same time in east and west. Others, like that of Sirmium in 351, were held wherever the emperor happened to be in residence, by the bishops attached at the moment to the court. The Synodus Endemosa, as it was later called at Constantinople. Others, again, were local and provincial. The atmosphere of Rome was never, perhaps, quite congenial to councils. Yet even the Roman Church was swept into the movement, and the pronouncements of Pope Damasus, 366-384, came before the world under the guise of conciliar decisions. The experience of the fifty years that followed the Council of Tyre in 335 taught the lesson that it was possible to have too much even of a good thing. Pagan historian and Christian saint from different starting points arrived at the same conclusion. Amianus Marcellinus, criticizing the character and career of the Emperor Constantius, noted caustically that he threw the coaching system quite out of gear, because so many of the relays were employed in conveying bishops to and from their councils. Per Sinotus quas appellant, at the expense of the state, and Gregory of Nazianzus in the year 382 refused to obey the summons to a new council, because, he says, he never saw any good end to a council, nor any remedy of evils, but rather an addiction of more evil as its result. There are always contentions and strivings for dominion beyond what words can describe. Perhaps it was partly by a natural reaction against councils in those districts, especially where they had followed most quickly upon one another, that the tendency to aggrandize the important sees at the expense of other bishops, and at the expense, therefore, of the conciliar movement, since in a council all bishops had an equal vote, seems about this time to take a sudden leap forward. Valens the Arian and Theodosius the Catholic alike made communion with some leading bishop the test of orthodoxy for other bishops. A first edict of Theodosius on his way from the West to take up the Eastern Empire in 380 expresses Western conceptions by naming in this connection only Damasus of Rome and Peter of Alexandria. A later edict from Constantinople in 381 places Nectarius of Constantinople before Timothy of Alexandria and adds half a dozen bishops in Asia Minor, and a couple in the Danube lands, 
as centers of communion for their respective districts. Here, then, we must pause for a moment to take into account the second main element in the history of the Federation of the Christian Churches. Every Federation has to face this primary problem, the reconciliation of the equal rights of all participating bodies with the proportional rights of each according to their greater or less importance. The difficulty which modern constitutions have tried to solve by the expedient of a dual organization, the one part of it giving to all constituent units an equal representation, the other part of it a proportionate representation according to population, or whatever other criterion of value may be selected, was a difficulty which lay also before the early church. The unit of the Christian Federation was the community, whose growth and development is described in the first half of this chapter, and that description has shown us that the necessary and only conceivable representative of the individual community was its bishop. But some communities were small and insignificant and unknown in history. Others were larger in numbers, or more potent in influence, or more venerable in traditions. Were the bishops of these diverse communities all to enjoy equal weight? Such a question was no doubt not consciously put up until the scientific and reflective period of Christian thought began, nor before the complex process of federation was approaching completeness. That is to say, not before the end of the fourth century. But insofar as it was put, it could receive only but one answer. In the theory of Christian writers from St. Irenaeus to St. Cyprian onwards, all bishops were equal, for they were all appointed to the same order and invested with the same powers, whether the sphere in which they exercised them were great or small. And this theory was given in sharpest expression in Jerome's assertion, in the same 146th letter, that the bishop of Gubbio had the same dignity as the bishop of Rome seeing that both were equally successors of the apostles. Ubicuncui fuerit episcopus, sive Romae, sive Eugibi, sive Constantinopoli, sive Regi, sive Alexandri, sive Tanis, usidem meriti usidem et sacerdoti, omnis apostolorum sexosaurus sunt. But in fact, and side by side, with the fullest recognition of this theoretical equality, the bishops of the greater or more important churches were recognized, as the rules of the Federation were gradually crystallized, to hold positions of privilege, so that the ministry of the church came to consist not only of a hierarchy within each local community, at the head of which stood the bishop, but of a further hierarchy among the bishops themselves, at the head of which, in some sense, stood the bishop of Rome. The first steps towards such a hierarchy were, on the one hand, the traditional influence and privileges which had grown up unnoticed round the greater seas, and, on the other hand, the positions acquired by metropolitans in the working out of the provincial systems. The canons of the same councils, which first provided for regular meetings of the bishops, eparchia or province, reveal also the rapid aggrandizement of the metropolitus, or bishop of the metropolis, who presided over them. If at Nicaea, the commonwealth of bishops, tolkoyu, to episcopo, is the authority according to one canon, 
by another, the ratification of the proceedings belongs to the Metropolitan. The canons of Antioch, sixteen years later, lay it down that the completeness of a synod consists in the presence of the Metropolitan, and while he is not to act without the rest, they in turn must recognize that the care of the province is committed to him and must be content to take no step of any sort outside their own diocese apart from him. Traditional sanction is already claimed for these prerogatives of the Metropolitan. They are, according to the ancient and still governing canon of the Fathers. Things were not so far advanced in this direction, it is true, in the West. At any point in the first five centuries, the Latin Church lagged far behind the pitch of development attained by its Greek contemporaries. Christianity had had a century's start in the East, and at the conversion of Constantine, it is probable that if the proportion of Christians in the whole population was a half, or nearly a half, among Greek-speaking peoples, it was not more than a fifth, in many parts not more than a tenth in the West. The Latin canons of Sardica in 343 show how little was as yet known of metropolitans, although many of the enactments deal with questions of jurisdiction and judicature. The bishop of the metropolis is mentioned only once, and then in general terms. Copiscopum nostrum qui in maxima civitate id est metropoli consistent. The name metropolitan is as far into these canons as to the earliest versions of the Nicene canons, where we meet with just the same paraphrases. Key in metropole sit constitutus. Key in ampliori civitate provinciae viditor esse constitutus id est in metropoli. With this backwardness of development among the Latins went also a much smaller degree of subservience to the state, and it resulted from these two causes combined that their church organization in the fourth and fifth centuries reflected the civil polity much less closely than was the case in the east the province of the nicene or antiochene canons is the civil province its metropolitan is the bishop of the civil metropolis and it is assumed that every civil province formed also a separate ecclesiastical unit it followed logically that the division of a civil province involved division of the ecclesiastical province as well. When the Arian Emperor Valens, about 372, divided Cappadocia into Prima and Secunda, it was with the particular object of annoying the Metropolitan of Caesarea, St. Basil, and of diminishing the extent of his jurisdiction by raising Antimus of Tiana to Metropolitan rank. And though Basil resisted, Antimus succeeded in the end in establishing his claim. Before the end of the fourth century, not only every province, but every group of provinces formed an ecclesiastical as well as a civil unit. The provinces of the Roman Empire had by subdivision become so numerous that Diocletian had grouped them into some dozen dioeses, with an exarch at the head of each. And the Council of Constantinople in 381 forbids the bishops of one diocese, or exarchate, to interfere with the affairs of the churches beyond their borders. So wholly modeled upon civil lines was the ecclesiastical organization throughout the East that in the middle of the 5th century, the canons of Chalcedon assume an absolute correspondence of one with the other. Every place which by imperial edict might be raised to the rank of a city gained ipso facto 
the right to a bishop, Canon 17, every division for ecclesiastical purposes of a province which remained for civil purposes undivided was null and void, even if backed up by an imperial edict, the real metropolis being alone entitled to a metropolitan, Canon 12. Civil and public lines must be followed in the arrangement of ecclesiastical boundaries. Toi politicos cae dimosios tipos cae toi ecclesiastico e taxis oculateto. This conception summed itself up in the claim put forward on behalf of the See of Constantinople at the councils of 381 and 451. The bishops of these councils, deferring perhaps not unwillingly to the pressure of the local authorities, civil and ecclesiastical, gave to the bishop of Constantinople the next place after the bishop of Rome on the ground that Constantinople was New Rome, and that the fathers had assigned precedence to the throne of Old Rome because it was the imperial city. Nothing was better calculated than such a claim to bring out the latent divergencies of East and West. Both in church and state, the rift between the Latin and the Hellenic element had begun to widen perceptibly during the course of the fourth century. Diocletian's drastic reorganization of the imperial government gave the first official recognition to the bipartite nature of the Roman realm, and after the death of Julian in 363, the two halves of the Roman Empire, though they lived under the same laws, obeyed with rare and brief exceptions separate masters. Parallel tendencies in the ecclesiastical world were working to the surface about the same time. The Latinization of the Western churches was complete before Constantine. No longer clothed in the medium of a common language, the ideas and interests of Latin-speaking and Greek-speaking communities grew unconsciously apart. The rival ambitions of Rome and Constantinople expressed this antinomy in its acutest form. The right of the civil government to be in its own sphere the accredited representative of divine power on earth, the duty of the Christian society to preserve at all costs its separateness and independence as the salt of mankind, the city set upon the hill. These were fundamental principles which could both appeal to the sanction of the Christian scriptures. To hold the balance evenly between them has been, through the long centuries since Christianity began to play a leading part upon the political stage, the worthy task of philosophers and statesmen. That one scale should outweigh the other was perhaps inevitable in the first attempts, and it was at least instructive for future generations that the experiment of an overstrained allegiance to each of the two theories should have been given full trial in one part or another of Christendom. To Byzantine churchmen, the vision of the Christian state and the Christian emperor proved so dazzling that they transferred to them something of the religious awe with which their ancestors had venerated the genius of Roman Augustus. The memory of Constantine was honored as of an East Apostolos, a thirteenth apostle. The resentment of the native Monosophite churches of Syria and Egypt against such of their fellow countrymen as remained in communion with Constantinople concentrated itself in the scornful epithet of Melkite or Kingsman. The Latins were more moved by the sentiment of the Roman name and less by its incarnation in the emperor. As Romans and Roman citizens, they felt the majesty of the Roman Republica to attach to place even more than to person. If Rome was no longer the abode of emperors, it was in their eyes not Rome, but emperors who lost thereby. 
the event which stirred men in the West to the depths of their being, was not the conversion of Constantine, but the fall of Rome. When Alaric led his Goths to storm the city in 410, there seemed to be need for a new theory of life, and for revision of first principles. The great occasion was greatly met. St. Augustine wrote his twenty-two books De Civitat Dei, to answer the obvious objection that Rome, inviolate under her ancestral gods, perished only when she turned to Christ. True it was that the city of the world had fallen, but it had fallen in the divine providence when the times were ripe for a new and higher order of things to take its place. The reign of the city of God had been ushered in. End of section 19